All right, welcome and welcome back. It has been 26 weeks since we've had in-person services. It's been six months. It's been 182 days, but, but I'm not counting. It's been a while since we've been in this room. So let me just say welcome back to many of you. I mean, let's just hear it. I mean, we are back. And let me just tell you this because, I, and I said this from the beginning, your soul was not created to handle as much bad news as you've been reading and watching. Okay, so let me tell you some good news. We've had over a thousand people register and be on this campus today. Isn't that just incredible? What does that tell me? Yeah, clap again. Can we still clap? Some people are like, I don't know. Can we clap? We can't. Um, here's what that tells me, okay? And I know there's many still watching online. There's others in the VHQ venue. There's others in the lobby. Um, and we're coming back at different paths and different paces, okay? And that's fine. Uh, but, but the vast majority of our church has said, at one level or another, I'm ready to come back. We are incredibly excited. Now, let me just, as I've reflected, because this is a good thing to do, right? Every time you're in a new season, it's like, well, let's look in the rearview mirror. Let's reflect what's been good in this season. And let me just tell you a couple things. Uh, number one, I'm thankful for our staff, okay? Our staff, and I might be just a little biased, we have the best staff on earth. I mean, I really, I really believe that, right? We, we're just gonna clap all night. It, it's okay. Okay, I need y'all to clap. Yeah, be excited. Okay, so uh, here's what that means. Um, just like in your industry or in your business or in your organization, everything changed in March. Everything went online and everyone got new job descriptions. Then things changed three or four of the times. And if it were not for our staff, who have tirelessly said that with joy, we're gonna we're gonna whatever we gotta do to love to serve to minister to our members and to at the right time bring people back. It's been incredible. Secondly, let me just say thank you to all of our volunteers. Uh, some of you are here this morning and you're back. You were serving this morning. You're back here this evening. Thank you. We have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who say I'm gonna serve one, attend one. I'm gonna work one, worship one. We couldn't do this without you guys. Uh, my brother, who I love, you know, I got a brother. He's three years younger than me. He came one Sunday early on in the church and he came to this, these new buildings and he said. He said, man, what is it, like, is it, like you gotta have like 100 people serving every, every Sunday. I was like, it takes 50 volunteers to run the kids' ministry one time. Just so you know, so it takes two, when we were running four services, it took 200 volunteers roughly every week just to run our kids' ministry. So they are servant leaders, and I just wanna publicly honor them and thank them. And then finally, our community group leaders. Our community group leaders have had to deal with you, okay? <laughs> we love you, right? <laughs> You're not easy to deal with. You don't like dealing with yourself. Your community group leader had to deal with you and your excuses and your explanations and your concerns and your fears and do we Zoom or do we not Zoom and do we meet outside or do we meet inside and how to navigate and negotiate. Are you really making an excuse or do you have the biggest hall pass in your life not to do something? Yikes. So, we, so we've got to, we, they had to deal with all that, okay? And they, and they did that servant heartedly and, and they did that humbly and they're doing a great job. It's not easy, and so we, I, th I thank God for them. And let me just encourage you one other thing, our Weekender, which if you're new, that's your next step. It's how you get connected, it's how you get committed, it's how you learn about community, it's how you learn about serving. Uh, our Weekender uh, for September, we, we launched it, and you guys respond to our Weekender the way that uh, people respond to Hamilton tickets, and thank you, okay? Um, <laughs> it sold out, it was great. Uh, we're gonna, we're, it's gonna be the largest one ever, we're gonna have it in here, we're gonna social distance, it's gonna be great. Um, and then we're, we're, it's already starting to fill up, but we uh, launched a new one today, it's gonna be October 23rd and 24th. So if you're the organized person in your family, write that date down, we would love to have you guys. We'd love to have, it's gonna help you take your next step toward community, and your next step toward serving, and let me just encourage you with this. I mean, we're seeing people grow in so many ways. There's a young lady in our church. She just turned 16. And think about, you know, some of you aren't 16 yet, but most of you are 16. What were you doing at 16? She gets her license. She reaches out to our kids ministry and says, I got my license, which means I have more freedom, and I would like to use that freedom to come and serve the kids ministry every week. Yeah. <laughs> 
I like that guy in the back who claps for me. I love it. Okay, this is great. No, I need it. Um, so uh, here's what that means, guys. We just are seeing people serve. We're seeing people give. And it's incredibly exciting. And one of the things we want to do is stop for a moment because most people stop and evaluate when things are going bad. Why are things falling apart? We're going to stop and say, Lord, I just want to thank God things are going so well. And so let's, let's pray and praise the Lord together and then get ready. We're, dump, we're jumping into the book of Exodus. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for the men and women here. I thank you for the men and women online and everywhere else watching. Lord, we just are so grateful. And we want to realize how unique it is to get to be a part of a church. We just thank you for the grace of God on this church. We thank you for the high commitment culture. We thank you for the servant-hearted leaders at the community group level, at the, at the, just at the, on the Sunday level with working one and worshiping one. Lord, and we just, I just ask, Lord, for just a new season. We, we, we're entering in-person services on Sunday again, and we're just asking for a new season. Lord, we, I ask that you would use the book of Exodus as a mirror in our lives to help us see ourselves rightly. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can type to or turn to the book of Exodus. If you're new or, you know, if you have one of those Bibles that looks like a real book, does anyone still have those? Everyone else is watching it on their devices, but okay, it's the second book. You'll be able to find it. There's Genesis, there's Exodus. Genesis is all about creation. We've talked about that. We're about halfway through that book as a church. We kind of start books and go back to them. And anyway, that book's about creation, the creation of the world, the creation of the family of God, okay, the kind of the recreation through the flood. Um, that book's about the creation, what is uh, Exodus about? Salvation. And honestly, if you could only know, I mean, I don't have a verse for this, but if you could only know two books in the Old Testament, it probably would be Genesis and Exodus. Because those, the book is, the Bible is very self-referential, and which means it references itself throughout, and it tends to reference most these two books. And so one of the things I want you guys to know is we normally as a church plan out about 12 to 18 months in advance where we're going. Books, ideas, themes, we're, we're really excited about it. Like most of you in your own kind of industries, we scrapped everything in light of COVID. I had a different series I was gonna preach. Still, I, we punted it. I'm gonna hopefully do it at some point. I'm excited about it. I'm not gonna tell you what it is yet. Um, but that'll get punted. We're doing the book of Exodus. And I want you to think about this for a second. Like, because it's a legitimate question. Why, why would we study the book of Exodus? Or here's even like a more personal question. What are you doing here? It's a good question to just ask yourself every once in a while, like, why are you here? Like, you know, you're going to sit through this for 40 or 50 minutes, and we're going to talk about a book about a bunch of Jews in the Middle East 3,500 years ago? It's not obvious why we're doing this. It really isn't. It's certainly not obvious to the world. It's like, it, what's more obvious is we should do a series on habits. I mean, it's, you know, kind of a new year, fall, or, or we should do something more on marriage and family, because that was kind of popular when we went through Malachi, and people are struggling in their marriages and their families, or maybe we should do something on finances or Goal setting's also really good, and, and get, by the way, we're not against any of that. But we have a deep conviction here that the, wor the Word of God, the Bible, is the written down Word of God, and that the posture of our church is to be under the Word. And here's, the, here's what we're hoping is going to come out of Exodus. And what I'm going to do, by the way, today's big introduction today, we're going to look at chapter one. We'll get there, okay? You guys are kind of have your hand on the page there. Um, we're going to get to chapter one, but I want to give you some introductory thoughts. Like, I'm going to give you a couple themes out of um, Exodus that we're going to trace. And the main theme is the self-revelation of God. So what, what that means is God, you wouldn't know God if God didn't let you know him. You're, you're too sinful. You're too selfish. So am I. You're too internally focused. You're too hard-hearted. You're too morally corrupt 
to ever know God if he didn't knock on the door and go, I'm going to let you know me. And that's what the whole book of Exodus is. The whole book of Exodus is, you know, you guys, if you know the book of Exodus at all, you probably know Exodus chapter three, which is the burning bush, which is when God shows up and says, I am who I am. Before God, tell, I mean, this is so powerful, we'll get to it in a couple weeks. But before God tells Moses to do anything, he gives him this massive view of himself. And it's so counterintuitive because, you know, and I'm the same way that you guys are. It's like, you just want practical tools. You want practical helps. You want your problems fixed right now. And what God wants to do is he wants to first give you a massive view of himself that's bigger than your suffering and better than your sin. And you go, okay, if I, if I have a bigger, if God is big and I am small, life begins to make sense. And if God is big, then every, if God is the sun in the solar system of my life, that's a good illustration to think about. If God is the sun in the solar system of my life, then the planet of sexuality goes right where it should. The sun holds it there. And the planet of finances goes exactly where it should. And the planet of hobbies and career goes exactly, and parenting, every, everything goes right where it should when the weight and the glory of Jesus Christ is first and foremost in your life. So, so, the, so the first kind of major idea that we're going to be looking at in, in the next, you know, we, and that's the other thing, I don't know how long we're going to be in this series, okay? Part, I don't know how far we're going to get. Part of it is we're just going to walk through and see, each week I'm learning new things and we're, we're talking and thinking about them together. Here's the second big theme, and this is what we're going to tr trace in the first two or three weeks. The theme of providence, and this is so important. And here, let me tell you why this is important, because let me tell you what happens in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And we're going to look at them in just a second. But in Genesis 1, if you read Genesis 1, it basically says uh, there's a bunch of guys and they're in Egypt and they're enslaved and Pharaoh wants to kill some babies. And you read it and you go, that's it? This is a terrible story. And it looks like the church is losing. And then you get to chapter 2, you're like, well, maybe chapter 2 will be good. It's like, all right, Moses, he almost dies. He kills someone. He runs away. He's hiding in the wilderness. He gets married to some girl, end of chapter two. You're like, what? This book's terrible. I mean, that, that, if, you're just, if you don't know what's happening, I believe it's the word of God. I'm just saying, here's why that's so important, because here's what providence is. Providence is how God keeps his promises. That's a good way to think about it. Providence is how God says, I care and I'm in control all the time, which is so helpful to know, because basically, um, the number one fight in your life when tragedy or trial or hurt or heartache, okay, when, when that happens in your life, the number one thing that you need to know, and this is like you could teach just like a three-year-old, right? It's like, well, God cares and God's in control. You're like, yeah, but my marriage is falling apart. Or my son is disabled. Or I just lost my job. Right? Because whenever you're suffering, and this is what we're going to see the people asking, it's like they're always asking, why me? And what the, whole book of Gen the whole book of Exodus, and you wonder, why have these books lasted so long? Well, one, because it's God's word, and two, because it just speaks such the truth to our hearts. You, you read these books and you go, um, you know, no nothing is going as the people of God had thought it was going to go, yet God is still at work. And that's so important because the older you get, the more your life will not be as you think it is. Right? I was talking to a lady after work, or after work, well, it was work for me, after first service. Um, <laughs> um, and the lady after first service, she, she's a really sweet lady, pulls me aside, older lady. She says, because she heard the sermon this morning, and she said, um, my life is not going at all how I wanted it to be. I was not planning on being a single mom at my age. I don't like where I am. I don't want to be where I am. I never planned. I, I didn't journal about this as a little girl. This is not the trajectory of my life. I can't fix it. And there's more people than you think who feel like that. 
And if you don't feel like that, you will know somebody who feels like that. And so the book of Exodus, for us, is we're going to begin a journey together, and we're going to see how, God's peop- how God uses his providence, which is his care and concern for the whole world, and how he's moving everything together according to his purposes and plans. Because like, you know, if, you, if you ask God, God, what are you doing in COVID? Well, at one level, it's very easy to answer that question biblically. It's like, what are you doing with race and riots? What are you doing with COVID? Uh, what are you doing with the closing of the church, the reopening of the church? What are you doing with the national election? Super easy answer. I mean, at one level, at the, at the macro level, super easy. I'm accomplishing my purposes in the world. That is actually the answer all the time. The 60,000 foot answer, that's what God's doing. Then there's the lower view answers. Well, okay, well, why did this happen to me? And why am I suffering here? And God doesn't give us every micro answer. He gives us the macro answers. So with that said, that's all introduction. Let's look at verse one. Exodus chapter one, verse one. I want you to see this. Exodus chapter one, verse one. Here's what it says. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. And you read this, you go, this is like the most boring sentence to start a book with, right? This is not Charles Dickens. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It's like, uh, there's a guy named uh, Jacob, and he comes with his family to e- Egypt, and so you're like, what's this all about? Well, what's interesting, and if you write in your Bible, and some of you do, you may want to write the word and, because the first word that starts the book of Exodus is the word and. Now, most English translations don't put that word in there. Why don't they put that word in there? Well, because you don't normally start books with the word and. Why is the word and in there? Because the book of Exodus is deeply connected to the book of Genesis. It's, you know, and I'm going to try to show you over the next couple weeks and maybe months, all the different themes that are intertwined. But for you to really, see, we believe here that the Bible is, yes, 66 books, but it's really one book by one author, God, about one person, Jesus, about one mission, ultimately. That's what the Bible's about. And so it, it shouldn't surprise us in one sense that the second book of the Bible would just start with the word and. And this is important because you want, the reason that we want to understand this story, the story of Exodus, which we're going to be reading and looking at over the next several weeks and months, is because we need a larger story to connect our life with. You have to. And the, and the problem is, um, there's, no, there's a lack of patriotism, whether you think that's a good or bad thing, but just historically, people have had a sense of patriotism with their nation, and they've connected their story to their nation's story. We don't do that anymore. But that was what, where a lot of people found meaning. Or if they didn't do that, they connected their story to their family story. But with so much divorce, right, and, and, and then, and this isn't a bad thing, but everyone's transient, no one lives around their aunts and their uncles and their parents and their family and their grandparents, and no one tells stories anymore. So, you know, you have no idea about your family history. So you can't connect there. And then the third place people found identities in religion. And, well, most people are not in church or in any kind of religious kind of system anymore. And so this is incredibly important. So I want you to pick, this up, pick up with me. Look what he says. Verse 2. It says this. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob, they were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. So it's a reference basically back to the book of Exodus and all these kind of men. And here's what you know about those men. Uh, If you start, I think it's around chapter 30 in Exodus, you'll start to pick up on the story of many of those men. And all of those men are terrible. If chapters 30 to 50 in in, um, Genesis was made into a movie, it would have to be NC-17. I mean, I'm dead serious. There's incest, there's kidnapping, there's betrayal. And if you read this, you're like, the whole point is actually God is providentially, somehow, I know it's a mystery, I know Christians can discuss and debate how it all works together, but somehow God is still working even in the midst of a lot of sinful people. 
And you go, well, why would God work through sinful, broken people like that? It's like, because that's the only people he has to work through, okay? <laughs> if he doesn't work through that, 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 he has no one else to work through. And so you have this story of God's working through these men. And then I want you to see this. Verse six, then Joseph died. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. Many of the main books in the Bible end or begin with the death of someone significant. So the book of Genesis ends with the death of Moses, or sorry, the the death of Joseph. Uh, Exodus begins with the death of Joseph. Deuteronomy ends with the death of Moses. Joshua ends with the death of Joshua. And what's, what's happening here is he's, he's actually, he's giving us a picture of how providence works. Remember, providence is how God says, I'm, I care and I'm in control. I'm going to keep my promises. And the first, for the first obstacle to that is, well, people die. You know, and then that's a real thing. It's like, well, you know, because there's always going to be that first generation faith that believed God. You know, some of you, you are the first generation in your family. Others of you, it was your parents or your grandparents or it goes back a long time. But the Bible's always asking the question, what will happen when a certain generation dies? And what you see in verse 7 is it says, it's very clear, Joseph dies and a whole generation dies. And Joseph was the Billy Graham of that day. Like, you know, John Piper, who's a pastor in Minneapolis, Minnesota, he, he tells the story of being a little boy. And he said, when he was a little boy, they used to always say, what would happen if, if um, Billy Graham died? He said he used to think, the, I don't know what would happen if Billy Graham died. Because Billy was so significant. He was so influential. And like Joseph, he had relationships with presidents in high positions. He flew all over the world. And there was a whole generation that thought, if something happened to Billy, what would happen to Christianity in America? It's kind of a similar question. Well, if Joseph dies, and then maybe everybody who knew that story dies, what's going to happen? Look at verse 8. Here's what verse 8 says. Or sorry, verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, if you pick up on that language, that is the language of the book of uh, Genesis. You don't need to go there now, but Genesis 1:28, the first promise of God is that, the, uh, the first blessing and promise of God is to be fruitful, to be multiplied, and to fill the earth. And what we're seeing is even in the midst of, the, of a generation dying, that generation had multiplied. That generation had grown strong to where they say, you saw this in verse six, that 70 people go into Egypt. At the end of Deuteronomy or at the end of the book, when Exodus, when people are leaving and they're they're going into the wilderness, it says there's 600,000 men, which they estimate to be between two and three million people, including women and children. So you have this huge growth, this huge multiplication. And here's the big idea just simply is like, what do we, how does God providentially keep accomplishing his purposes? Simple people like you and me pass our faith on to the next generation. That's it. I mean, our desire here at Two Cities is for every person to be a disciple maker, to to make disciples that make other disciples. What are community groups about? What are DNA groups about? What, What is this all about? It's all about us helping to multiply and pass the faith on to the next generation. One of the most encouraging things about today has been that we've had close to almost 200 kids across these three services in that other building. I mean, that just such a huge win for us as a church to say, we're getting the next generation ready and we're passing on the faith. Tell you one other encouraging thing. Um, Justin Mormon, who's uh, our student director, he told me that this year we have 18 fifth graders moving up to sixth grade in the student ministry. 18 fifth graders moving up to sixth grade in the student ministry, a whole generation that's getting ready to go to middle school together and are asking the questions, how do I follow Christ 
in 2020 in middle school? Pray for them, okay? It's hard. It's going to be hard. But they're asking that question. So the first thing that they have to deal with is death. Here's the second thing, verse 8. And this is very applicable today, verse 8. But there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So first they have to deal with the death of a whole generation. Secondly, they have to deal with changes in government. It sounds applicable. I didn't plan on talking about this, but, you know, it showed up in Exodus 1, so it's like, you know. And by the way, I have to say this every time we talk about anything that has maybe political implications. Uh, we always deal with things at the theological level, which is the basement and the bottom, okay? <laughs> the most foundational and most formative level is theological, and most people don't think on a theological level. So most people will say things like, you're being political, you're polarization. It's like, no, no, no. We're talking about a deep theological issue that actually has maybe political implications, because you can't talk about anything important and not have political implications, so if people say, don't talk about religion, don't talk about politics, they're saying, don't talk about anything important. Okay, weather, sports. That's it. I can't talk about anything important. So what I'm going to talk about is I'm going to deal with things at the theological level. Now, a Christian or Christians could, could read it and go, okay, that's at the theological level, but I, I might apply that differently in my life than you would. We might believe the same theological truth from Scripture and apply it differently. Well, here's what I'm showing you here. The first thing that they're having to deal with is a change in government and a new king, or what we'll see in a little bit, a new pharaoh. And think about this with me for a little bit. So for them, they got a new pharaoh once in their life usually, right? Because dictators don't retire. Dictators die. And then they pass their empire on to their son usually, who has the same last name. So depending on like, you know, imagine, imagine living and dying and only have seen one or two pharaohs or one or two kings. That, that would be the normal experience for most people across all of human history. And I thank God for where we live, that every four to eight years we get a new pharaoh. I mean, that, that's actually a good way to think about it. And, and one of the things that you see is, what, what, is the, what does it say about pharaoh? Look at verse eight. Uh, now there arose a new king over Egypt. We get one thing that we're told about pharaoh. One. We're going to get to hear a lot of terrible things he did, but the root of the problem is this, who did not know Joseph. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean he didn't know who Joseph was. Because Joseph, you don't get to save a people from a famine. If you know the story, again, you got to go back and read Genesis. You don't get to save an entire nation from a famine and be forgotten. It's like you can't really be, you can't be like a high school educated American and go, I don't know who George Washington is. I have no idea who Abe Lincoln is. It's like, well, no, you may have forgotten what they believed. You may have a very shallow, simplistic, surface-level understanding of them. And see, that was his problem. He had forgotten the reality of the God of Joseph and what God had done for the people. He'd forgotten really, not that, not that the Pharaoh with Joseph was ever a Christian, but you get what I'm saying. And so here, here's the question that I, I've wrestled with this week, and part of what we do on Sundays is wrestle with things together. And here's the question. Does it matter who Pharaoh is? Or to make it like more applicable for us, does it matter who wins this election in November? Or oh, there's a lot of elections in November, but the presidential election. It, you know, it's like, well, the answer to that question, like the answer to all difficult questions is usually yes and no. And th just think with me for a second. It's like, well, does it matter um, who Pharaoh is? Well, the, ha the answer at one level has to be yes. We're, we're told actually how terrible of a guy this Pharaoh is. And we're, we'll see this in a little bit, but he actually makes life incredibly hard for God's people. And they long for the Pharaoh that knew Joseph that gave them religious liberty. They long for that Pharaoh. So at one level, you have to say like, yes. Otherwise, don't vote. Don't talk about it. 
It's like, it ha- well, policies change and ju- judges are put in place no matter how you land on everything. It's like, it has to matter at some level. But then there's like, remember, there's the, the, the kind of foundational basement issue under that is like, well, does it matter who Pharaoh is? Well, at the deepest level, no. It's not like on November 4th or November 5th, like, you know, wherever you are, it's like if, if, you know, we have the same Pharaoh or we get a different Pharaoh, it's not like God's gonna be up in heaven going, all right, we're done for four years, that's it, <laughs> you know? Or maybe eight years, I mean, I don't, I don't know. You know, talking to Michael and the angels, I don't know what we're gonna do, guys. I mean, we, were going, we had this great commission, we were gonna make disciples, we were going, but now we, you know, it's like, it's so silly, because of course not. It's like, now, can things get more difficult? Or maybe stay safe, whatever, however you, it's like, or get easier, or however you, but the, the, whole, the whole idea is, there is this idea that they get a new Pharaoh, and this is, the, this is, this is gonna sound not encouraging when I read this to you, but, but it's to be encouraging. Look, look what happens in verse nine. In verse nine, it says this. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. So what the, prob- the number one problem in Pharaoh's life is he doesn't know God. Therefore, he doesn't know how to interpret life correctly. Therefore, he sees God's people not as a blessing, but as a burden. Right? He doesn't see a, a, a right place in society for the church. Here's what happens, verse 10. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and they fight against us and they escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities of Pithom and Ramses. But, and here's the encouragement, but the more they were oppressed, that's the active, willful, intentional harming of people. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. Isn't that amazing? And the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. See what happens, and this happens all the time, right? Like, the, the more of a minority that Christians become in society, and the more the government pushes on them, whatever that looks like in different ways, the, the, or let me say it this way, the less social advantage it is to be a Christian, the more you just have real Christians in the church. Right? And just so you know, I mean, you used to not be able to get a mortgage at a bank if you didn't show what church you were a member of. I mean, that, there was a time in our nation's history where that kind of stuff happened. And it was just an advantage to connect yourself to a church body nominally. Now it's a disadvantage, right? And so what's, what's happening is the church ends up under persecution and under pressure, the church ends up getting stronger. Which leads to the third thing. First, they have to deal with the death of a whole generation. Secondly, they have to deal with governments that change. Um, and thirdly, they just have to deal with suffering in general. Do you see that? I'll, I'll read it to you again in verse 11. It says, therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And then I want you to go down actually to verse 13. So they, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In their work, they ruthlessly made them work as, and here's that word again, slaves. So Pharaoh is afraid of them. He's acting out of fear, and he ends up enslaving them. Now, this is so interesting. You know, we always have to condemn immediately. Slavery is a sin. Racism is a sin. And what Pharaoh is doing is completely, utterly wrong, right? And every time you enslave people, you have to dehumanize them. And just so you know, there's still today 30 million slaves. I don't know how they get these statistics, but I read this this week. 30 million slaves. There's sex slaves. There's service slaves, right? One's about perversion. One's about greed, 
but, it, but it's real and it still happens and, and people are still dehumanized and it's, it's horrible and God hates it. With all that said, what's so interesting is when people look back and ask the question, how did Israel grow so strong? I want you to hear this. How did they grow so strong? How did they stay believing and worshiping in, in God? Because here's what normally happens. You move into a society, you're a small minority, the culture absorbs you. You begin to look more like the culture, you begin to believe what the culture believes. You begin to intermarry with people who worship different gods and then you know, you're absorbed into the culture. So what the commentators say is, this is so interesting. Because they were enslaved, which was terrible, and they hated it, and it was wrong, and God's going to, we're going to see later in the book, free them. God used them being enslaved so that they would be a slave class and they would not be able to intermarry at all. And so they would only marry each other. Therefore, and the whole story, by the way, of, of the book of Exodus and all the Old Testament is God preserving his people. Like, that's one of the miracles of Scripture. Have you ever met a Hittite? No. How about an Amorite or a Jebusite, right? Or an Electrolyte? Oh, yeah, I'm kidding. Okay. You can see if you're paying attention. Um, but you've never, you've never met any of them because they've all been absorbed into the culture, because they didn't keep their identity, because they didn't worship their God long term. One of, the, one of the great miracles of Christianity is that God has preserved his people throughout all generations. But this is, this is the whole idea. I mean, he does it through pain. And, and I say this because some of you, and I don't know each of your situations, some of you are in a lot of pain, right? And, and you, know you're, you know you're in pain when you're asking the question, like, why me? Why is this happening to me? Why now? And, and the way that providence works, just so you know, is you can't understand providence looking through the you know, windshield of your life. You can only understand it as you look through the rearview mirror. And, and, and so, so much of the story of Israel and the, and the story of your life is to look back and go, that was a really painful season of my singleness. Or that was a really difficult first five years of marriage. Or that was a very difficult season in parenting. Or, or I hated my boss for five years. But as I look back, I see that God was growing me. God was preparing me. We say here all the time, hear me, your greatest sin, your greatest struggle, your greatest weakness, your greatest suffering, long-term ends up being your greatest ministry. Just get used to it. Because people who are hurting want to be ministered to by people who have been hurt the same way. You know? It's like, I, I know people. It's like, okay, I, I know the people who it's like, their marriage is really difficult. They don't want to sit and talk to the couple who goes, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't like those people, okay? <laughs> okay I, so, but you know what I'm saying? It's like, we've never had any problems. Our marriage is just, we just have these great personalities and I don't, I mean, it just, it's been awesome. It's like, you're not gonna be, you're not gonna be doing any marriage counseling at all. Um, you know, but people wanna, people wanna be ministered to by people who say, you know what? I remember what it was like. I, re I remember fighting and I remember being scared and I remember asking questions and I remember feeling like I married the wrong person. And let me tell you by the grace of God what God has done in my life. You know, are you, you, people who've had difficult children, I and mean, we've all had difficult children, you know what I'm saying? You, who, you, it's like other people who are struggling in parenting, they, want, they, don't want to be, they don't want to talk to somebody who's had the perfect kid their whole life. They want to be like, all right, this is, how, this is what it was, and this is how the teenage years were, and this is how we prayed, and this is what we're asking God. It's like, yes, that's what we want. And so God is going to use all this. We're, we're going to see it's, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Wait till we get to chapter five, and, and he says, you're going, to make, you're going to make bricks without straw. It's going to get worse. And, and here's the bad thing. So, so here's how slavery works today for us, just on a real practical level. Uh, the the uh, cultural word for slavery is addiction. I would say in America, the most common form of, 
personal slavery is what's called self-selected slavery. And honestly, it's where you find yourself in some addiction. It might be sugar, right? It might be shopping, it might be a screen, it might be pornography, it might be alcohol, it might be substance abuse. And, uh, and, and what's so hard about that oftentimes is you feel like, and just so you know ahead of time, because you're gonna minister to people like this too, people who are in self-selected slavery, it's the worst form. And God's gracious that God can get you out of it, but it's like, I did this to myself. And I know I did this to myself. And I've been lying about it for a long time now. Some people find themselves in addiction and it's secret. Let me encourage you, that's not where you wanna be. Right, we, we bifurcate here between secrecy and privacy. Right? <laughs> Secrecy's bad. Nobody needs to know about that area of my life. That's not helpful. Privacy is not everybody needs to know, but I need to let a few people in. And so what we see is God's going to use this. God's going to use their suffering for good, ultimately. And I want you to know that's actually welcome to the story of Christianity. I mean, we follow a guy who was crucified. And if you want to know how did Christianity get from 12 people to 1.5 billion, there's one answer, suffering. How does the gospel break into a college campus? One word, suffering. How about a new neighborhood? One word, suffering. How about a new closed country? One word, suffering. And so what we see is they had to deal first with the death of a whole generation, secondly with the government, third with suffering, and then finally, just in general opposition. And I want you to see how this ends. Verse 15, then the king of Egypt, things keep getting worse, and we're just, we're just in chapter one, we'll keep going, but uh, in weeks to come. Then the king of Egypt said to, to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua. So Shifra and Pua. Now, this is interesting because we don't know Pharaoh's name. It's really interesting. We don't know, I mean, there's still a debate. Who is this guy? Which Pharaoh is he? When did he die? Who took over? It's like, God doesn't care. God's like, he was another Pharaoh and he was good or he wasn't good and so whatever. But then, but then these two ladies, and we're gonna see in a second, it says later they, they get family. So we think these are two single young women save the day. And by the way, we're gonna see this story, but this is in a culture where women were, not biblically, but culture where women were looked down on, where, where they didn't have the same rights as everybody else. And so God has always had a exalted high view of both men and women. And so what we end up seeing here in the story, and I love this, is we're going to see two women and how God providentially uses them. And if you're reading this story as like a Jew 3,500 years ago, you're like, okay, midwives is like a low paying job, not respected. Women would not have been respected in that culture. And they are going to save the day. And I want, you to, I want you to look at this with me. Here's what happens. Verse 16. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Verse 17. But the midwives feared God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But let the male children live. So what this is is, it's interesting, this is a governmental system led by Pharaoh who does a couple things. First, oppresses and enslaves the people. Secondly, doesn't want any kind of religious liberty and worship of the people, we'll see that continue. And then third, wants to kill babies. This is the first abortion in scripture. I mean, it would have been a real abortion except they, could, they didn't have ultrasound, so they didn't know if it was a boy or girl, so they just did infanticide right afterwards. And what's interesting is you go, well, why just the men? Because they had a whole other plan for the, for the girls, most likely sex slavery. 
And so this is a terrible situation. And you know what I love is that God uses, and I said this earlier, but young godly women, particularly young single godly women, to stand up for life. And, and let me just tell you this. I, you know, I've been a believer for 18 years, and I get to, you know, every once in a while I'm introduced to, you know, this pro-life organization and this pro-life organization and this pregnancy care center. And every time I go into one of those, I meet the strongest, most godly women. I mean, I, I had two of them come, there, there's a, I can't get into it now, but there's an organization coming here called the Pregnancy Network, and they're, they're, they're a pro-life network coming here, and two of the women reached out to me, and they came to my office, and I'm not kidding you, I don't know why, I, don't, I wanted to bow before them. I didn't, because it would have been awkward, they did, you know, but I, I mean, I literally, when they came into my office, I was almost like, you know, <laughs> I really was, because I'm like, you know, and, and they're just so unassuming. I'm like, you know, what are you doing? Oh, just saving lives every day. I mean, just dealing with difficult, I mean, th those environments are dark. We live in a culture of death. You have to understand that. Beginning of life, end of life, death. Kill them. If it's, if it's too hard to take care of them, or if they're disabled, or if they're t they cost too much money, kill them. That's the culture that we live in. And you see, you see these women, and, you know, there's an there's a HBO Max, which is, the Netflix for HBO, and you, this little side note here, this is all connected. And um, uh, why is he talking about this? Um, so um, they, they, they're creating original content, right? And, and your original content is like, you know, for Netflix and Amazon and Hulu and all these things and Disney, it's your big kind of like, let's make a mark. Well, HBO Max this week just came out with brand new original content, this movie they're pushing called Unpregnant. And if you go and watch the trailer, I've seen the trailer, I've not seen the movie, Unpregnant is a story about a girl who is under 18, I believe, who can't get an abortion in her state. So she goes to her friend's house, and the whole movie is a humorous account of them driving to get an abortion in a different state. It's the normalizing and humorizing of the killing of babies. I mean, just so you know, every time an abortion happens, a, ba a baby dies, every time. You don't become more human by moving through the birth canal. And so what you have here is you have these women, and then they have to, they have to stand up, right? It's like, you, well, you know, good luck. Good luck standing up, you know, for life or Christ or anything meaningful. Here again, it's like, well, stand up for something. It's like, well, now they've got to deal with Pharaoh. So you've got to see what happens here. It says this, verse 17, but the midwives feared God. That's the motiv motivation for civil disobedience, right? This is, by the way, the first account in the Bible of civil disobedience. Uh, there's not a lot of civil disobedience in the Bible, just so you know. The case for like, you know, every once in a while there's some guy that goes, I don't want to pay my taxes. It's like, uh, sorry. <laughs> you know, doesn't count for civil disobedience. Civil disobedience is like Exodus 1, uh, Daniel, uh, Acts 4, maybe a little bit in 1 Peter. There's not a lot in the Bible for civil disobedience. It's kind of like, hey, as much as possible, I want to, you know, I want to be a good citizen until I can't be a good Christian. I want to obey the laws of the land until they confront with the laws of heaven. That's what I want to try to do. But it says here, the midwives feared God. And we're having a lot of conversation right now about when is it okay to be, you know, practice civil disobedience. One of the answers is when it's rooted in you fearing God, not you not wanting to be comfortable or uncomfortable about something. Here's what it says. But the midwives feared God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt has commanded them, but let the male children live. Verse 18, so the king of Egypt called the midwives. And he said to them, 
Why have you done this? And let the male children live. And in verse 19 is a, is a, is a really helpful principle to understand as we engage in the world and as we try to stand up for truth and as we try to make a difference. In verse 19, what they do is they tell the truth, but they don't say everything that is true. And that's something where they, they don't, some of, you know, it's like they, they don't make a Facebook post about what they're doing, okay? They don't get really, really loud. They don't, they don't put a big blog out about why they're doing what they're doing. They just humbly say, I'm going to obey God. I'm saving life. And here's what they say. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. Well, are Hebrew women not like the Egyptian women? I guess they weren't. They're somewhat, they're probably thinking they're at least a little bit different. We can talk about that way, you know? So it says, uh, for they are vigorous, they give birth before the midwife comes to them. I guess this you know, answer pleases him. It says, so God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Do you see this common theme? It's like providence. God's still moving. The government changes. They're enslaved. <laughs> the first generation dies. God's gonna continue to move forward. Then it says this, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And then look at verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people. So he moves just from the midwives. This is, this is how you know a government, by the way, is becoming totalitarian. They begin to tell their citizens to spy on one another. Just beware of governmental systems that encourage the spying on one another. So here's what it says. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast in the Nile. So I want everybody focusing on killing male babies that are Hebrew. It says this, but you shall let every daughter live. And then look, that's the end. That's the end of chapter one. So let's pray. It's not quite yet, okay? <laughs> but because it's like, that, so you think about it, you go, that's, that's it? And you a couple things to think about here. You, you think about the story, and, and you, if you don't know the rest of the book, you're basically going, God, would you please do something? You know, and some of you are that in your own life. God, I need you to work. God, I, I, I need you, you. I don't feel like you're doing anything in my marriage. I don't feel like you're doing anything in my work. I don't feel like you're doing anything in my neighborhood. Wh whatever it is. And God's answer is, I'm at work the whole time. This story, by the way, can you think about, those of you who have been around for a while, maybe know the Bible decently well, can you think of another story where a king decides that he wants to kill a bunch of little male babies? Matthew, the book of Matthew. The New Testament starts with a very similar story, where Herod hears that there's a new king in town. He also is threatened and fearful, and he also wants all, I think it's all babies under two years old, killed. And that is how the New Testament starts. And you've got to, you read the New Testament, you go, God, is this, is this your plan? And then Jesus Christ comes into the world, and guess what? Jesus Christ, they, they estimate that Jesus Christ lived in a house the size of a parking uh, spot. I mean, think about that. When you leave tonight, think Jesus Christ lived in a house the size of this parking spot. And it says he was from Nazareth, which is like rural hall, Okay. <laughs> I mean, you know what I'm saying. It's just like, it's, the, people from, the people from Rural Hall are not laughing. They're like, that's not funny. Um, but the whole idea is like, middle of nowhere, nothing's going on there, okay? And, and, and there's hope for you, Rural Hall. I mean, Nazareth, Jesus comes out of, uh, out of Nazareth. The, the whole idea is, and then think about it. It's like, well, Jesus lives, this is going to be interesting. Jesus is very much like Moses. He's the better Moses. We'll talk about that at some point. But he lives 30 years in relative obscurity, working with his stepdad. 
swinging a hammer. I mean, talk about a completely obscure life. Most people think some, we don't know exactly when. Joseph dies because he's a good man, but not mentioned later. So what is Jesus raised by? You've probably never thought about this. Jesus is raised by a single mom. That's why God has a heart for single moms. His son had a single mom. So, he, you know, Jesus is raised by a single mom, and then it's like, well, okay, well, maybe, you know, uh, did Jesus ever have to deal with an unjust government? Uh, yeah. He had an unjust trial where he's chained like a slave. By the way, they also would humiliate you. All crucifixions were done naked. There is no loincloth. It was to completely humiliate you publicly. And then they crucified him. And if you, one of the reasons that people don't believe Christianity is it's offensive and it seems almost strange that God would work in those ways. But if you get it, and I think many of you get it, if you get it, it's incredibly hopeful. It means that actually God can make the best things come out of the worst situations. I mean, literally, when you think of the cross of Christ, it is technically the worst thing possible. It's the worst thing possible happening to the best person possible. That's what it is. The Romans perfected crucifixion. Excruciating literally means from the cross. There's nothing more painful than being crucified. It's the worst thing that could happen to you. And it happens to the best person while he's young. His life's ending. While he's innocent. And we see that out of that comes the salvation, the potential of the salvation of the whole world for every person who would say, Jesus, I give you my sin, I give you myself, I believe. So here's how I want to respond. I want, to, I want us to pray together. If you'd bow with me right now, and here's what I want us to do. I want us to just ask a couple questions. And, and I just want to give you a moment to respond in your own heart if you want to write a note down or something, but these are the things I think as we go into this series together, I want us to ask. The first question is this, how are you going to pass your faith on to the next generation? The, the scripture teaches that we should actually pass on worship, wisdom, and wealth to the next generation. How are you going to do that? What is your plan to do that right now? Who's maybe one girl, one guy you could disciple to pass on your faith? Here's the second thing. Where do you just need to be thankful for the providence of God in your life? I was talking to a young lady one time, and she said, you know, I, this, this relationship ended for me, and I was really sad when it ended, but in the rearview mirror of my life, I see completely that God saved me from about 10 different terrible things. It's like, amen. We can only understand our lives in the rearview mirror. But part of the way that we believe in the future grace of God is we look back on our lives, and we see the past grace of God in our lives. And then the, the last question is just, where do you need to be like the midwife, and where do you need to go against the grain? You know where that is if you think about it for a minute or two. For some of it, you need to go against the grain in your family. For generations, your family has not worshiped the Lord, and you're going to be the first generation. For others of you, it's at work, and you know it's at work. And you don't need to be loud. You need to be like the midwife. You need to be humble, but you need to be obedient. Lord, I want to pray for us right now that you would strengthen our church. Lord, so much has changed in the last six months. Would you strengthen us, Lord? Would you, in this book of Exodus, in your word, would you give us such a big vision and view of you so that everything else in our lives goes exactly where it should be, Lord? Lord, give us the ability to pass this vision on of you to a whole nother generation and to our entire city for your glory and for their good. We pray all this in Jesus' name.
Amen.